0: A Living History production. This is the Living History podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and thank you for joining us on another episode of Living History. Gee, it's been a busy time in the history space over the past few weeks. There's been All manner of anniversaries of important dates in history. So if you haven't listened to the recent episodes of Living History, certainly go back and check those out because there's just so many great stories coming out at the moment. We're struggling to keep them uh, up to date and to bring them all to you. So listen to Living History and the previous episodes we've done. Check out the videos we're doing on YouTube. There's all sorts of good stuff happening in the history space at the moment. A bit of a housekeeping issue. Thank you to everyone who's ordered copies of Peter Hart's book, The Gallipoli Evacuation. It has been delayed, I'm sorry to say. We expected that you would have received it by now. and, And unfortunately, due to COVID, that hasn't happened. Everyone from designers to printers are operating on reduced staff and reduced hours. So it's taken longer than we anticipated to bring that out. But thank you very much for your patience. It is at the printers now. So within a matter of weeks, you'll have a copy of that book in your hand or the ebook version sent to you via email. It's a fantastic read. Thank you for your patience. You will really not regret ordering this book. It's fantastic. So look out for the Gallipoli evacuation in the coming weeks. Now, to today's episode, a bit of a change of pace from some of the things we've done recently. Uh, Last year, I was fortunate to go to the National Library of Australia in Canberra, and they showed me some wonderful items from the collection. And the one that probably spoke to me the most was one that I wasn't expecting to see, one that I knew nothing about. Uh, It's something that really spoke to me, though. It was a, a collection, two books of watercolours, which had been painted in the 1830s by a woman called Dorothy English Patey, and she came out from England and lived in Newcastle, and she painted these wonderful watercolours of Australian native plants in this strange and fascinating new environment she found herself in in colonial New South Wales, The watercolours weren't just wonderful pieces of art, though. They told the story of her life. And her story was not unique to her. Her story was one of hardship, of struggle, often of grief and sadness in this hostile new environment. And it really was a wonderful testament to colonial women of the 18th and 19th century who came out and helped build Australia. And it was a a surprisingly emotional story hearing all about Dorothy and these works of art and the emotion that she put into them. So I, I really enjoyed hearing about it, and I wanted to bring it to you in its entirety. I was originally only going to do a small excerpt of this interview, but I decided I wanted to bring the whole story to you because it was just such a moving tale of a fabulous pioneering Australian woman. Uh, and the story was told to me by curator Nat Williams, and here he is talking to me about the works of Dorothy English Pacey.
1: So what we're looking at this afternoon are two... Uh, obviously quite aged, um, sketchbooks. Uh, a largest one, probably about A3 sheet size, each sheet. Uh, and a smaller one, probably about A4 size. Uh, they're both, um, of a type that could be purchased in the, in, in the, uh, uh, late 18th, early 19th century. And what makes these books unusual is that they're in good condition. <laughs> they're full of beautiful watercolours. Uh, they made the passage from England to Australia and then back again and then back to Australia again, uh, which is why they're in the collection here at the National Library. And they're remarkably robust survivors of, of a kind of um, a, a sad life, really, of a, of a very talented young woman painter who lived in Newcastle. Um, and uh, as soon as I sort of found these, looking through the collection of, of Sir Nant Cavell, whose marvellous holdings we have here, I was engaged by them immediately because, as you can see here, you know, this Macrosamia, xantheria, is just stunning. You know, it sort of pops off the page. She's done this, what, A3 size rendering of it that uh, is both botanically accurate. But also, you know, you feel as though you could pick it up in your hands and sort of examine it almost three dimensionally. And what she's done in the way she has, um, contextualized it with the leaves behind, leaves behind it, um, is really adventurous as a kind of composition. So it's not just a pretty picture. It's a kind of, um, it contains quite a lot of data. And I think the thing that's interesting about her is that while there were probably, you know, there were a lot of young women coming out to the colonies, Australia and, and, and New Zealand, uh, Australia and New Zealand, but also, you know, uh, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, particularly in the early days, they were trained as watercolourists. It was part of the sort of so-called ornamental education that they had. They sang, they danced, they could play the piano, uh, you know, So, and and they a very variable quality. And what stands out to me about um, Dorothy English Patey's work is that they are so um, adept. But what's interesting is that, you know, when you're sort of looking at this one, which is pretty stunning, you turn the page and the next one on the following page is she's written uh, Native Rosewood. Um, She's uh, written the location where it's painted, Newcastle, July the 28th, 1835. Um this is a more traditional looking image um, it's well rendered you know still got they're well modeled uh, the images you know've got this sort of rather weathered looking stalk that she's sort of got these wonderful fruits suspended from but what's interesting about her, I think is the fact that for for I can't find any evidence that she was a trained painter. So one assumes that she was just, you know, um, modestly trained. Uh, She didn't go to the Royal Academy or anywhere like that. Uh, So what's interesting about her is that she's writing down the specimen names, where where the specimens have come from, uh, where they were painted, the date of their being painted and, you know, it gives her a great context to the object and that's not something you find, generally speaking, in, in sort of the work of, of, of uh, colonial female artists. Um, it gives it a more of a scientific reading and it suggests to me that she had a really serious interest and as you go through the albums there are, uh, you know, she, she, when she doesn't know something, for example, on this page it just says, a rare orcus. Uh, uh, obviously an orchid that's caught her eye. And and often she was brought uh, specimens by her husband, Patey. She says, Patey brought me this from such and such. Uh, Or they were brought from uh, – she had a number of friends that contributed to her. And she also had the local um, uh, priest, the the local uh, rector, uh, who was a fellow called Charles Wilton in Newcastle, and he um, facilitated bringing things. So he'd go out on his duties, you know, doing the parish, uh, you know, going up to Maitland, various places. And when he saw an interesting plant, because he was interested in them himself, he would bring them back for her, and then she'd paint them, and then she'd record when she got it and who she got it from. That it was from him, etc.
0: Nat, what I what I love about this as an item is that there are so many layers to this story. So just starting with it, we've got these wonderful watercolours of these native Australian plants, which speak of certainly talent. That she, she may not be classically trained, but she has talent. It speaks of the new sense of discovery of these new arrivals in the colonies and the, yeah. the, 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 the obscure and the strange and the overwhelming plants and animals they are encountering. But there's also a very strong personal connection here, isn't there? Because... These sketchbooks, we were discussing this before the interview, these sketchbooks tell the story of her life in many ways. As she went through happiness and grieving and and all the emotions that we all go through in life, she yep. expressed it by these incredible paintings. Just tell us a little bit more about her as a woman and how these, these incredible sketches tell her life story.
1: Sure. Well, she comes out to Australia with her husband, John. He's 14 years older than her. They arrive in Hobart end up in Sydney uh, where they spend about a year. They have a little boy called George that gets born in Sydney. They then get sent up to Newcastle where he's the Deputy Assistant Commissary General. So in other words, he looks after the provisioning of the settlement. It's quite an essential role, an important role in in the town, uh, which at that stage is no longer a convict settlement but still has a lot of convicts and, you know, it's not by no means a big town at that point. Uh, So basically she's there living with the husband, with the little boy George, and um, she's looking at all these kind of wonderful specimens with this sort of absolute curiosity but also the ability to render them with, I think, great beauty and, and significance. Um, and you have that sort of sense of, of wonder really, you know, that these things are something that she fe- feels are precious. The other thing that you realise is that to be a good botanical watercolourist takes great skill because you have to do it quickly, you know, you can't let the thing just sit there for days, <laughs> particularly in the heat. You know, um, it's going to dry out and then it's not, and the colors will change and it's not going to look so great. So she's got to apply herself to it. So while she's administering to her husband and child and doing the household chores and doing things you would do in a remote settlement like that, she's got to, she's really passionate about painting. So she is fitting these things in around the normal daily schedule. And, and she did have, I think I found that she had one convict servant. Uh, for a while, uh, so that would have helped her a bit. But she has um, a daughter who's born in Newcastle, and the little girl's called Elizabeth. And very sadly, she passes away at the age of eight uh, months, eight days, and uh, is buried um, in, in Newcastle um, Cemetery at uh, Christ, Christ Church Cathedral. Um, she, you see her sort of going through the processes of painting these. Um, specimens and after the death, there's nothing for about two months. And you can read that by the, when she does the last one and when she does the next one after that. So for two months, she does nothing. She's grief stricken. She must be, you know, feeling terrible. Uh, then suddenly it's like she's just sort of unbottled something and she just launches herself into it and she's doing watercolor after watercolor after watercolor. And she's doing maybe three a week for the rest of that year. So, you know, it's like this sort of outpouring of of grief. Um, And I've also worked out that, you know, she um, becomes friendly with a woman in the local, you know, in in, um, uh, Maitland, a lady called Mrs Harriet Anley, who's the wife of the police magistrate. And I think she's five years older than her and she helps her through this really difficult patch, you know, where she's got um, a little baby has lost a daughter and, you know, is a very long way from Devon where she, where she grew up. Um, the story goes on that she becomes pregnant again. She has another little boy. Um, and His name is John Thomas Patey. Uh, and again, she's painting around the exigencies of motherhood and trying to fit all this in making meals, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, And more and more specimens are sort of coming to her from different places. Uh, and we find that uh, eventually, as was, you know, I mentioned Mrs. Anley before. Mrs. Anley ultimately has 14 children, which is, you know, not that uncommon, I probably think, for that period if you didn't die in childbirth. I noted that when uh, I did a bit of research on this, when I looked into the deaths in the year 1834 when the little girl, Elizabeth, died, um, something like thirty over 30% of the deaths in the church records in Newcastle were children which was double that what was normally Uh, so something was going around she picked up something it was not uncommon that sort of experience of grief must have been pretty shattering but I think these watercolors in a way are as good as they are because of the grief you know because she's really finding a way to kind of memorialize grief in, in in physical form through these things but also having the intellectual kind of rigor of saying you know like this one here that we're looking at which is this beautiful picture of the gi- uh, gigantic sort of you know lily from uh, from uh, uh lily as we know it she's called the gigantic lily but what i love about this one is it's exploding off the page it's virtually not contained by the one page and then on the opposite page she's got this fabulous great stalk going up across the page and she says stalk of the gigantic lily sometimes from 18 to 20 feet in height so she's giving you that great visual picture okay this stalk takes that, that head on that scale 20 feet in the air which you know you see when you're driving in from the airport in Sydney for example so she's quite adventurous in the way she's putting these things together um, and there's one there's one particular one which i uh, think is really quite significant for a uh, a whole range of reasons but i'll just deal with this one first man. i think this is probably the finest finest most elegant Work that she produces, it she calls it parasitical plant uh, found on the Maitland Road by um, Mr. Wilton, that's the priest uh, attached to a uh, the bark of a uh, swamp oak. So you know you're getting a lot of data. There are out of are extraordinary that descriptions as <laughs> yeah, well. You know, if, right. I, if
0: I was, if I had one iota of talent like she does and was able to paint something that even yeah. approximated that, I'd probably just write flower that I found <laughs> by the side of the road. Right. She's telling us yeah. whole. Illustrative story of where it came from and how it came to be in her possession, and it's it's so descriptive. It's incredible.
1: I think this is one of my favourite ones in the of the fifty of the fifty odd that she's done. It's one of my favourites. You've got these wonderful elongated, elegant looking pods. You've got these incredibly dainty um, 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 orchid flowers. They're really beautiful. You've got a sense of how. Vestigial, the whole thing is. It's really a very delicate thing, and it's made its way back via the cur- courtesy of, of Reverend Wilton and, and made it um, safely to her. But it's also loaded with a kind of significance for me, and that you know, you realize this was painted on August the 11th, 1836, and a few weeks later, she's dead because she gives birth to her final child uh, of of the two that have survived. She's given birth to the fourth child now. And his name was Francis, and it's really rather sad. Le apostrophe Oz, A-U-S. Francis Laws, as in Francis of Australia. Uh, And he dies, um, I think it's 19... uh, she, he dies, yeah, about 19 days after birth, something like that. And then she follows him very quickly. She dies of puerperal or fever or, uh, you know, from childbirth complications. So, you know, you have, suddenly have this sense that, you know, she's left this incredible legacy of beauty. Uh, all this kind of little bits of scientific data wrapped in it, great storytelling potential to do with their relationships with different people in the community. Uh, and yet she's ended up uh, dying at the age of thirty one and he John, the husband, fourteen years old, and he's then got to say, "What do I do with these two boys i've got to, I've got to keep make a living. I've got two kids to look after. So he takes them back to England, they live with their aunts in Biddeford. he goes off to be a, a commissary general in in Quebec in Canada, and dies at the age of fifty three. So these boys hold on to these sketchbooks, which, again, is rather poignant, this idea of their remembrance of their mum as little tiny kids, you know, mums and artists, you know, looking at these books, turning the pages. And we know from conservation uh, advice that they've been looked at a lot. You know, they were not an unloved sort of set of two books. They were actually looked at a lot. And I suspect that Cabell, the collector, looked at them a lot as well. What What... It, another point that I should just add is that one of the drawings that she does is, is fabulous and it's quite, um, it's a or Australis. It's a, a sort of um, bush plum, really, a bush apple, a bl- big blackish sort of fruit with a rather lustrous coat on it. And uh, she gets a branch of this brought to her. And I was looking at it um, and I was trying to work out and I kept sort of thinking, what's these words sort of drawn on the page? And it says, ma. Gill. And I thought it was McGill, just M-Gill. And then I got closer and closer and magnified. No, no, it's McGill. And then I thought, hang on. Well, McGill is uh, Biruban, the Aboriginal man who worked with Lancelot Threlkeld, who was the linguist and priest, who is up in um, that area um, around Lake Macquarie and writes the first, I think, lexicon of Aboriginal language. Uh, anyway, so you've got this sort of name, McGill, and then underneath it, it says, um, hyphen bung, and I thought that's a sort of interesting word, umbung. And then I realised that you know what McGill, who may have contributed in bringing the specimen to Dorothy, he's saying this is a plant that we know, we eat, we use, and it's called umbung. So you've got this cross-cultural thing going on, preserved in one watercolour sort of, which I think really rather wonderful, uh, the fact that she's meeting these people, as you would expect in a small community, you know, um, you're a person of some status being married to the you know, DACG of the community and people would come and go. But the fact that she's stopped, she's met this man, they've conversed, she's actually managed to get from him that the name of that plant is Umbung and we know who he is, Miguel there on the page, I think it's a very poignant moment in, in, in her life probably.
0: This is a wonderful legacy that Dorothy has left us of her life and her work and her emotions and her, the, the, the tragedy of some parts of her life. Did she leave us anything else? Do we have diaries? Do we have letters from her? Or is this the only thing that she's left us for posterity? Uh,
1: Matt, it's the only thing I can, I've can. i been able to find. We, we, Strangely enough, in our collection, we do actually have another uh, watercolour, which is uh, that. And it is of... Inscribed on the back, Mr. Patey's Station, Newcastle, 1836. Now, I don't, the writing on it is not hers, so um, it may have been painted by her, and it's the kind of thing you might imagine she might have done to memorialise the house and where they lived. And there's a little inscription saying, you know, which marries up with a mark on the watercolour that says that's the laundry in the kitchen out the back, you know, so she's giving details about it. So it may have been made by her, but inscribed by somebody else. I would love to find diaries, but the closest thing I've come is a corresponding album by Harriet Anley of watercolours, which are very complementary to the watercolours we find here with Dorothy's work. And that's in the State Library of New South Wales collection, and and nobody's ever drawn those two together. And one day it'd be lovely to display them together to be able to show that story and, and tell a bit more of it. But um, what I loved about these, is, other than the fact that they're such great images, is that it's really telling a story about a woman who would have otherwise just gone unrecorded.
0: It makes you wonder how many other extraordinary people, because she was extraordinary from, from this account, how many other extraordinary people just went by the wayside that we don't know about because they didn't leave us this wonderful gift of these beautiful I paintings?
1: I could, couldn't agree more. I mean, I think... As I suggested at the outset, the idea that these boomerang back and forth, they come with her from England, they spend time in Newcastle, they end up going back to England with the boys, they end up going into the market, they come back to Australia, and we now have them today, almost 200 years later, is just fantastic. And it is really a testament to colonial women. You know, the power of the, you know, the strength, the kind of resourcefulness, the surviving of the slings and arrows of fortune, you know, losing children, you know, that, that sadness, but trying to be, you know, upbeat about it and saying, well, I'm going to keep pressing on with these because these make me happy and I think the boys will like these, you know, later and sure enough they get to keep them. And what what's rather pointed, again, is that in the front of the album here, I can show you, um, is, is Francis, um, uh, sorry, is is John... Uh, it, it perplexed me for a little while, and then I worked out the monogram. Uh, it's got an elephant's head with a with a trunk and a crown around it, and it says JTP John Thomas Patey He went on to become a solicitor, although died sadly only at the age of twenty nine. But the motto K Sarah Sarah, whatever will be will be. And I thought, well, that's an interesting kind of little footnote to the whole story.
0: Nat, in your work, you must deal with a lot of extraordinary historic items. But as we've been talking about this, uh, you know, I can hear the emotion in your voice. You must feel with an item like this that there's a, a strong personal connection through the ages, that this isn't just an item on a shelf for you. No. Tell me how you feel to be able to – How do you? what's your relationship like with Dorothy Patey? Yeah. Tell, us, tell us about you and, and her.
1: Um, thank you for asking that question because I did I, – I really – became very invested in them you know there's not much written about her uh when when they did a kind of major work on australian women artists um botanical artists years ago Joan kerr and various other people have done some she's sort of mentioned and what's mentioned is about you know the the inscriptions and the fact that she's slightly a bit more interesting than, than perhaps other people working but i just sort of thought I felt very connected to the story because I literally, I I got out sheets of paper and I just wrote down every day that she did on a calendar, every day that she did a watercolour. And then I plotted them over the births and deaths of the children and the family and the family movements and things. And you got this incredible sense of how this was worked into her life, that, that, you know, she's this young woman, you know, in a fairly... You know, dry sort of community. There's not a lot of cultural life and here she is uh, doing these amazing things. And so interestingly enough, I went to England um, about a year, a year and a bit ago and I made the journey to Biddeford because I wanted to see where she had grown up and where those boys lived and I could actually look at the place on the quay where they they had lived with their aunts. And I hadn't been there before but it's a lovely little town with the river torrent flowing through it, quite beautiful. And spent a night there and uh, went to the museum and uh, ended up actually acquiring some Biddy Black. And Biddeford Black was a a – which is interesting in a funny kind of way, it's a coal – anthracite, basically, and, and it was ground up as a pigment right up until the late 1960s. Uh, there was a mine they used to call the Biddy Mines, you know, Bitterford mines. Mines. Uh, it was used for mascara, it was used for watercolours, it was used for all sorts of things, colouring. And we were in the museum and we got talking to the local curator who popped up from somewhere than my partner Erica was talking to him, and uh, he disappeared and she disappeared from it and She came back and she had this plastic bag full of this pigment This ground up bitty black pigment. And I had been thinking about, had she been using, had she actually brought some of this pigment from Biddeford uh, to colour the works? And, And it's quite possible that she might have. And so you've got this sort of interesting connection there at that level with Newcastle being a coal town, Biddeford having this coal seam running through it. And there must have been a sort of similarity for her there. But my partner, who's an artist, ended up doing some watercolors with these uh, of flowers and various things with these um, uh, with some of this pigment, which I thought was a rather nice um, posthumous sort of honor to, uh, to to Dorothy. So, I've gone and visited and stood in her footsteps, and uh, I would love one day to find a diary or something like that to find out a bit more about her.
0: How would you like Dorothy to be remembered after all these years?
1: <sighs> That's a that's a very good question um when i talked about her a while ago i, I um on her tomb well i should tell you two things one is uh, she was buried in newcastle with with her daughter um and francis laws and uh i went to see the the grave and i was told oh no they got rid of them and so there's a black and white photograph of the grave from the 60s but at some point, Newcastle Council, for some reason, got it into its head. Oh well, we you know there's too many gravestones up there on the hill. We're going to get rid of them. So they ripped them all up and took them out to a park outside of town, and now they're all lost. So I was a bit sad about that. But I could at least look at the black and white photograph. And in the black and white photograph, um, there's quite a nice inscription to her, as you might imagine, from her from her uh, husband, uh, and it referred to her as, as an exemplary wife and mother. And a kind friend. And I said that I thought they should have added the words, and a fine artist.
0: Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast, and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content.
1: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much.